Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of May 2021 and this is episode 206. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talked to historian Philip Tardiff about his recent book on the North Irish horse during the Great War. This is published by Pen and Sword. Philip spoke to me from his home in Australia. Philip, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. I was born in Tasmania, uh, but spent most of my life in Canberra, where I worked as a civil servant and a political advisor. Uh, I now live in uh, a town called Wollongong, which is just south of Sydney. Uh, I studied history at the Australian National University. Uh, history's always been my passion. Uh, my first book was called Notorious Strumpets and Dangerous Girls, which was uh, the story of convict women in Tasmania. Uh, my second book uh, continued that uh, colonial theme, uh, John Bowen's Hobart. It was a a History of the First European Settlement of Tasmania. That was shortlisted for the 2004 Tasmania Prize. Uh, so my latest, uh, The North Irish Horse in the Great War, uh, being a, a military history, is a, a bit of a departure, a bit of a change of theme on that. So why did you write this book and why is it important? Uh, well, it started with my grandfather, Frank McMahon, who was from Newry in Northern Ireland. He, he had served in the North Irish Horse in the war and uh, he'd come to Australia during the time of conflict uh, immediately afterwards. About 20 years ago, I decided to learn more about his experiences in the war. Uh, Our family didn't know a lot. He he told his stories over the years, but we didn't know too much. I was able to get copies of the uh, regimental diaries and transcribe them. Um, Then I travelled to to the French and Belgian battlefields uh, with my mother, Patricia, uh, Frank's daughter. Uh, She's also a history buff. Uh, The story of the regiment drew me in. And before I knew it, I had a large collection of letters, diaries, official records and photographs. And, uh, and I built a website on the, on the uh, regiment's Great War record. So the logical next step was to write the book. And uh, in pen and sword, I found a great publisher. Um, in terms of why it's important, uh, I think the North Irish horses sat very much in the, in the shadow of the 36th Ulster Division. Uh, which has loomed, loomed large in popular memory of the war in Northern Ireland. Uh, the story of the horse is worth telling on its own. They, they were the first reservists in the British Army to see combat within three weeks of war being declared. And they were there until the bitter end, some units at the very front of the advancing force when the armour signed. Uh, they saw the retreat from Mons, the Battle of the Somme, Vimy Ridge, Messines, Passchendaele, the German Spring Offensive and the advance to victory. They fought as cavalry, infantry, cyclists, and even some in tanks. Their, their story in some ways is, is the war in miniature. Um, I also wanted to tell the story of the men who served in the regiment. Um, it's their words that bring it to life. Uh, and I've been very lucky to have had some wonderful material to work. So let's go to the, back to the beginning. Could we start with the formation of the North Irish Horse? Why was it actually uh, formed as a unit? And what was the basis and logic behind that decision? Uh, the, the regiment was formed on 7 July 1908, following the disbandment of its predecessor, the North of Ireland Imperial Yeomanry. Uh, at the same time, its sister regiment was formed, the South Irish Horse. Uh, it was a result of the, the Haldane reforms, which were designed to create an army reserve more able to support the regular army in time of war. Uh, training was much more rigorous. Uh, they, 
they had a compulsory annual camp for six weeks, uh, compulsory weekly drills uh, in the local towns for each troop. They were required to go overseas with an expeditionary force if, uh, if ordered to, uh, and they got much better pay. Uh, despite that, um, many of the old yeomanry uh, weren't that keen on the more rigorous uh, approach, uh, and less than, less than half joined the new initiative. Uh, but the numbers were made up within a year, and from then on, they didn't have a lot of trouble recruiting, uh, recruiting up to there. So what was the tactical and strategic role of this unit uh, before the war, once it was formed in 1908? Tactically, uh, the regiment was trained to operate as mounted troops to an infantry unit. So they were, so they were armed with rifles, but not with swords. Their role was to act as a screen for their division, uh, depending on the tactical situation as advance guard or rear guard. They'd gather information about the movement and location of the enemy, fight off enemy attacks, keep uh, the enemy at a distance, and seize and hold strategic points uh, until reinforced by the infantry. And their training very much reflected this, with an emphasis on scouting, marksmanship, seizing and holding ground. And it was very familiar stuff to their officers as well. Their social life uh, involved riding to hounds, and, and many of whom had been regularly regular cavalry officers. Strategically, um, they had two roles. First, there was internal security, uh, the traditional role of the, of the yeoman uh, to discourage and, if necessary, quell internal dissent. Um, that had a particular overlay of sectarianism in Ireland, so it was quite a sensitive one. Uh, they were used for this purpose actually during the Easter Rebellion in 1916, when troops of the regiment were sent out on patrol across the country. Um, the second strategic role was to supplement any expeditionary force with a squadron of mounted troops. As it turned out, they provided five mounted squadrons during the war, not just the one. So what yeah. was the structure and deployment of the unit before the war? What, 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 if I was a, a soldier who wanted to join in Uri, where would I go? And, and what's, what sort of um, things would I be doing on a regular basis um, as, a, as, a, as a part-time volunteer? Right. Well, broadly, um, the North Irish Horse was based in the counties of the north of Ireland, uh, Antrim, Down, Armagh, Tyrone, Londonderry, Donegal, Monaghan, Fermanagh, Cavan. Um, if you'd lived in any of the other counties, you would have joined the South Irish Horse. Um, it was made up of four squadrons. These were based in Belfast, Enniskillen, Londonderry and Dundalk. Um, and each squadron had an establishment of six officers and 112 men, with four troops to each squadron. Every major town had its unit of horsemen. So, for example, C Squadron had units in Five Mile Town, Omar, Pettigo, Ballyshannon, Lisnaskia and, and, and Enniskillen. Uh, if there was a war, the regiment had to provide a squadron of six officers and 152 men at 48 hours notice to join the expeditionary force. Um, the men to go were selected on a rotational basis. So every man had his year on call. Um, the recruit uh, would, would go to annual training for six weeks. Uh, they did their regular drills at the local local town hall, um, which apparently they quite enjoyed. And, uh, and they were, of course, were paid for this. So what was the yeah. social class of the pre-war recruits and their officers? And how did, I mean, for instance, did they have a particular um, be on home rule and did they come from a particular sort of um, social group within Ireland? Yes, well, they were overwhelmingly farmers and the sons of farmers, um, with some farriers and blacksmiths and similar tradesmen useful to mounted uh, mounted troops thrown in. Uh, so essentially they were the, the rural lower middle class, often the tenant farmers of the big landowners. So their employers in civilian life 
were often their offices in the North Irish Horse, and they were almost exclusively Protestant. So during the Home Rule Crisis in Northern Ireland, 1912-14, when Westminster was uh, sought to give Ireland a measure of independence, the Ulster Protestants were vehemently opposed. Uh, the officers of the North Irish Horse and their men were, were up to their necks in the activities opposing uh, Home Rule. Most were members of the uh, paramilitary Ulster Volunteer Force, including its mounted squadron, the Enniskillen Horse. They were heavily involved in the land gun running when thousands of rifles were smuggled into the country for the UBF. And they made their position very clear during the Curra Mutiny when officers of the British Army based in Ireland threatened to resign rather than enforce home rule in Ulster. It was believed by the authorities that if it came to civil war, the North Irish Horse would side en masse with those fighting against home rule. So in a lot of ways, war with Germany in August 1914 actually diffused as a very tense political situation. So we come to the outbreak of war. Now, one thing probably to, to look at before we actually get into, into what, the, what the North Irish horse did in war is to consider, were mounted troops any use in a modern industrial war? I know it's been a debate of historians, yes. but what's your view? Yes, it was hotly debated uh, even at the time, and I'll, I'll, I'll read you a indulge with, with a, couple, a couple of quotes from the time. Uh, Oliver Nugent, the commanding officer of the 36th Ulster Division, uh, he wrote, it is in fact, it is a fact that the cavalry have done absolutely nothing except block the roads and follow the infantry. The cavalry is as much out of date in this war as a naked man with a stone axe. Um, that was a bit harsh, I think. Um, there's some truth in it. But in my view, certainly in terms of large scale offensive operations, the age of cavalry had passed. Uh, there were some notable actions during the war on the Western Front, but in essence, machine guns, barbed wire, artillery shells made such work impossible. Um, and with static trench, trench warfare, there was little work for large groups of cavalry. However, in the role given to the North Irish Horse, the, the work of, uh, of mounted infantry, they were still very useful, particularly in the early months of the war. You read the newspapers from that early time, they're full of letters written home describing thrilling encounters with German cavalry. Uh, they did operate as an effective rearguard and, and helped keep the enemy guessing as to where the British forces were. Um, sometimes they got very close to the enemy, closer than they wanted. There's a story of a trooper Ellison who was accident accidentally riding into a German cavalry camp in the middle of the night. Uh, when he realised his mistake, he tried to sneak out, but he was spotted and, and had to gallop for his life. Um, and once trench warfare did take hold, in full, the North Irish course still found much work to do in uh, uh, less glamorous uh, activities, such as mounted traffic control, on police work, on communications, um, and other interesting activities. It's interesting that when the uh, the regiment's only Victoria Cross winner, Richard West, was attached to a tank regiment in the last year of the war, he didn't ride in a tank himself, but he rode alongside them on his horse, giving them orders and directions as they went into battle. Um, so were mounted soldiers of any use? Yes, to some extent. To some extent. So how, and how did the um, regiment change during the war in terms of its, its role in its sort of strategic and tactical use, um, leading mm. ultimately to its conversion to infantry and cyclists? Yeah, um, the, the role played by the regiment as a cavalry unit changed as the war evolved. Uh, initially, it was used 
as I said, for its original purpose, divisional cavalry. Uh, a squadron uh, also acted as escort and bodyguard to the commander-in-chief, John French, through 1914 and 1915. They also took their turn in the trenches, relieving the infantry and, uh, and on wire laying and trench repair fatigues, on salvage work, traffic control, labour details and prisoner escort duties. But the prevailing sense you get through 1915 and early 1916 is one of boredom. Uh, this wasn't the war they'd signed up for. Lieutenant West, again, for example, wrote, I've never been so bored in my life as last winter. A bloody existence. So his solution was to organise cockfighting tournaments and, and, and hunts across the French fields. Um, another officer who was joined in the trenches by a, a squadron of North Irish horse wrote, They're awfully sick at the class of warfare we are waging at present. I haven't a notion of what they expected sort of orgy of shooting and stabbing, I suppose. But I tell them they can have as much adventure as they like if they choose to send out patrols at night in front of our barbed wire. <laughs> right, let's get on to the, what, what's the, what the units of the uh, North Irish Horse did during the war. Now, the, now, for sake of ease, they had two subunits, which were known as the first North Irish Horse, which, which was the original pre-war unit, and then the second unit, the second North Irish Horse, was raised uh, during the war. So could we start with the first North Irish Horse and, and what it did during the war? Yes, yeah, so the first North Irish Horse Regiment was formed as a unit in May 1916 from A, D and E squadrons, who were, which were all in France at the time. It served as, as Corps Cavalry to, uh, to Seven Corps, then later 19 Corps, then Five Corps. Uh, so a similar role to their earlier work, but on a larger scale. Instead of serving as a squadron to a division, they were serving as a regiment to a corps, to an army corps. Uh, on the first day of the Battle of Passchendaele, they were, they were given the job of helping seize the fourth line, then riding further forward to occupy the, the high ground of the Passchendaele Ridge. As it turned out, the ground won that day wasn't enough and they weren't needed. Um, at Combray, they were brought into the line south of Marquin, uh, dismounted with their Hotchkiss machine guns to help hold the line against the German counterattack. Um, they stayed there into the, into the new year. In February 1918, the 1st the Regiment was dismounted. Their, their horses were replaced with bicycles and they were, they were made a cyclist unit. This, this must have been a terrible come down for them and very sad for the, for the men to lose their horses. Uh, and not all of them could ride, could ride a bike. Um, their training apparently involved being taken to the top of a hill and uh, being pushed down it. Um, their new role as, uh, as cyclists was, was in many ways similar to what they'd been doing as cavalry, advance and rear guard for the infantry and communications between divisions, brigades and battalions. Uh, one advantage they had was that uh, uh, there was no one needed to stay back and, and hold the horses. Um, so this, this allowed more of them to go into to action. Uh, almost straight away, they played an important role during the German Spring Offensive, helping Five Corps to uh, five Corps with communications, rear guard and traffic controllers uh, as Five Corps retreated from Combray and the Somme. But their moment of, glory, of real glory came during the Advanced to Victory Offensive from August to November 1918. During that offensive, they were almost constantly used as advanced guard and machine gunners in all five corps, divisions of Five Corps. They were out ahead of the advance from the Somme right into Belgium. It was dangerous work and they did take many casualties. When the armistice was signed, they were actually very close to where they'd first seen action four years ago. And some of them who were there in 1914 were still with the regiment. So we come on to the second um, North Irish horse. Why was it formed and where did it serve? Well, the second North Irish horse, um, like the first, was was formed in that uh, that consolidation of, uh, of squadrons into, into regiments. Um, the, uh, it was formed in June 16. 
um, uh, they brought together they brought together C Squadron, F Squadron, and the Sixth Inniskilling Dragoons Service Squadron, which had come out with the thirty sixth Ulsters. Uh, it was deployed as Corps Cavalry to Ten Corps. Its first role was on the Somme going in just behind the fighting zone and at night and clearing up the battlefield north of La Voiselle, salvaging anything that had been left behind and, and recovering bodies. It must have been grim work and, and all the while they're under shell fire. Uh, my grandfather actually remembered burying bodies uh, only to see them blown out again by artillery fire. Um, oh, here's an example from the regiment's war diary at the time, 19 June 1916. 63 British and 36 German bodies were buried. More than 300 rifles and various equipment were collected. Communication trench is now clear of dead, but a lot of equipment still remains to be salved. There is a quantity of ammunition still lying about. Also numerous bombs intended for the front line that never got there. Um, in mid-1917, the 2nd North Irish Horse was one of a number of cavalry units that were disbanded and the men trained as infantry. They were moved en masse into the uh, 9th Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers, which was renamed in their honour, or maybe as a bit of a salve to their, to their pride, as the 9th North Irish Horse Battalion. From then until the end of the war, they were uh, almost constantly in action. They were at the battles of Combray in the fight for the, village of, the villages of uh, Merv and uh, south of Marquois. They suffered very heavy losses in, on the retreat from St. Quentin in March 1918. Not just killed and wounded, but many made prisoners of war. Uh, the survivors were then sent north to Ypres to recuperate, uh, only to find themselves at the sharp end of the next German offensive. Then from August to November, they advanced across Belgium in a series of heavy actions on the advance to victory. Uh, by the end of the war, they uh, and the other North Irish horse regiment were almost unrecognisable from what they'd been at the beginning. Not just the fact that they weren't riding horses, uh, but in the changes to their personnel, um, where they were from, their backgrounds, uh, and their professionalism as a fighting fighting. Which brings me on to my next question. What what exactly was the nature of the personnel change within the unit? For instance, um, did 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 the North Irish Horse still recruit predominantly from Ireland, um, even though conscription didn't come into Ireland uh, in 1916 as it did in in England, Wales, and Scotland? And what was the sort of background of the troops? Did they still retain a sort of a rural background, or were they increasingly from the urban working classes? Yeah, they. Um... They were, there were significant changes personnel over the course of the war. Um, initially, yeah, they were farmers and farmers' sons, the traditional yeoman class. Um, the majority of recruits during 1914 and 1915 were quite different. They were from the cities and the towns, uh, white-collar workers quite often, uh, apprentices and tradesmen from the, from the manufacturing sector, uh, with a good mix of old soldiers as well. Um, there were a lot of very, very young ones who lied about their age to get in. There were a lot of very old ones as well. Uh, often, often the old soldiers were still very keen to get in um, and were taken on. Um, on conscription itself, um, although, as you say, conscription in Ireland uh, was never applied, it, it was legislated but never applied, this wasn't a problem for the North Irish Horse initially, as they were always flooded with recruits every time they opened their books. Um, it was seen by the officers of the North Irish Horse more through the lens of sectarian politics time. The, the commanding officer of A Squadron, for example, wrote about how conscription would let them, and I quote, drag the papists off the mountain to make them serve. Now, that's how they saw it, however unfair, given the, the large number of, of Catholics who were serving. Um, through 1917 and 1918, however, volunteers for the regiment did slow to a trickle. 
and with no conscription, it was hard to fill the gaps. Um, so much, so more and more of the men sent to join the 9th North Irish Horse Battalion, North Irish Horse Cyclists in France, were drawn from England and Wales. Um, many were conscripts and, and others from English yeomanry regiments. Um, and much of the shortfall among the ranks of the regiment at home was filled with Irishmen conscripted in England. Uh, at least one officer there wasn't impressed, it seems, took things into his own hands. He wrote to a friend in 1917 that while, quote, while we used to have a very fine lot of men, now we get the most infernal ruffians. He then wrote, I've 80 in a batch the other day, but I've made 40 of them desert, and I hope to make the other 40 go pretty soon. And my penultimate question looks at casualties. So what sort of level of wounded and dead were, were suffered by both um, units of the North Irish Horse? Uh, for a while, they got off quite lightly uh, because of their role as cavalry. Um, that all changed in the last 12 months of the, after the first regiment came a cycle and second. And, uh, overall, the number of deaths amounted to almost 200, which is near 10% uh, of those uh, horsemen in France. Uh, it included 40 officers, 150 other ranks. The great majority came in the last 12 months of the Battle of Cambrai through the, to the advanced period. But roughly three quarters of those were killed in action or died of wounds, but a, a significant number also died of disease or illness, uh, mainly influenza and tuberculosis. Um, and while the majority died while serving with the North Irish horses, cavalry or infantry, cyclists, uh, a large number also died having transferred to other regions, the uh, the first Royal Irish Rifles lost heavily at Passchendaele. Uh, it's difficult to say how many were wounded, um, but based on an analysis I've done of the War Office daily casualty lists, we're looking at a ratio of roughly five or six wounded for every man killed. So if you consider a death rate of around 10%, uh, then the casualty numbers were, in terms of including wounded, were very high indeed. Um, it's something that, that does need more work though. Um, and of course, then there was prisoners of war. Um, the first North Irish horse prisoner of war was Private Andrew Smith of County Tyrone. He was taken at Lakato on, uh, in August 1914, and he wasn't released until the end of the war. Uh, hundreds more were made prisoner in March 1918, when the 9th North Irish Horse Battalion was overrun on the retreat from St Quentin. And finally, Philip, where can people learn more about the book and, and your work? The North Irish Horse in the Great War is available from Pen and Sword, in hardback, paperback, or on Kindle. You can also find out more about the regiment on my website, www.northirishhorse.com.au. I'm always adding more information, and if any listeners have photos, letters, or other information on the regiment that they'd like to share, please get in touch with me via my website. Philip, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>